Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I do not get nervous when I do podcasts, but I am a little nervous, I have to say, because I'm sitting across from a hero. Uh, And um, a true legend is an overused word, but um, a great artist and a legend, um, the leader of uh, the band, one of the great songwriters of our time, uh, one of the best film composers of our time, uh, a really good prose writer, and the subject of a new documentary called Once Were Brothers. Uh, and uh, he has a new album out called Cinematic with an S, in music inspired by the Irishman, right? Uh, yeah, the Irishman is part of it, and it's part of the documentary as well. <clears throat> and it's just that at the same time, just a new album. Um, but all this stuff was going on, so things got cluttered, and uh, I wanted to incorporate everything. And I did. Well, the the it's clear like you're in the studio, uh, bookending the documentary bookends with the that's with right. These moments of the Irishman, right? And um, I've been listening to the record a lot, and I have to say that the record's beautiful. No, oh, it's Robbie Robertson. I didn't say your name. People should have gotten it from the whole thing of the band. But um, I wanted to start by kind of asking you what's lighting you up right now. But I what I what I want to ask is, I mean, I was looking today. And it's like you've only made six solo albums, right? I've lost count, but probably something like that, yeah. What What's the process when you decide, you know, being somebody who spent so many years writing so many songs and being so prolific and being on the, I mean, from when you were 14 years old, what's the period in between like for you? And how do you decide, oh, I have, this feels like a record. I'm ready to do this. You know, after the last waltz, I thought that I had earned a ticket to make music whenever the hell I felt like it, as opposed to, because I was no longer, oh, make a record because you're going to do a tour. And you would make a record to do a tour. And I got tired of that formula and that routine. So after the last waltz, I I was in a process of discovery and thinking about, oh, I'm going to, you know, I I produced that movie and then I produced another movie after that and uh, called Carney. And then Scorsese, Martin Scorsese asked me to work on the music for Raging Bull. And and we were buddies and, and housemates actually for a couple of years. And And on Raging Bull, I completely got addicted to this idea because I thought, I don't know if I want to do incidental music for movies. That's how you thought of it at first. Well, that's what a lot of them called it. And I said, I don't want to do anything incidental if I can help it. And so anyway, in Raging Bull, it was such an extraordinary experience and obviously a phenomenal movie. And so I would do that with Marty, and then I would make a record if I was inspired to. And I wrote a memoir testimony that this documentary is based on. And I'm, um, and with all the things that are going on right now at this stage, at this crossroads, I don't know if I've ever been this busy in my life. And when you say at this crossroads, how would you define that crossroads? I think that it has something to do with 
being around for three quarters of a century, yeah. <clears throat> and I've been doing this professionally since I've been 16 years old, and been around the block and back. You know, we've had experiences. You, you couldn't write this stuff. You, you know what I mean? It's just, it was with the Hawks, and then with Bob Dylan, and with the band and everything, Oh my God, the experiences. I'd put it up against any music group in the history of the world. Well, I, I agree with you. It's clear. Um, I mean, that's why I said at the beginning of this, it's sort of in, intense. Um, talking to you because you're a part of American musical history. You, you know, uh, any, in some sense, anyone who makes music is, but you shaped the culture around music. You were part of shaping it for a very long time. The thing is, when, when you talk about how you start the documentary by saying it all starts with this guitar, but then when you talk about your sense of purpose and what music meant to you, the fact that, I mean, it's an incredible moment that Ronnie Hawkins needs songs, and at 14 you go lock yourself in your bedroom and write two songs that he then records. Did it feel then like the music was just coursing through you, like calling to you in a way where now you have to call to it? Is it is it different or is it the same for you? It's funny. There's there's a song on my new album. It's called Dead End Kid. And when I was 13, 14 years old, I thought, God, one of these days I'm going to go out in the world and I'm going to make music, and I'm going to write songs, and I'm going to sing here, and I'm going to do this and do that. And everybody said, whoa, you're, you're, you're setting yourself up for a heartbreak. That doesn't happen. You're from Canada, and you're half Jewish and half American Indian. What are you thinking? Right. This is never going to happen. So anyway, I, you know, I, I thought... You people have no imagination. I, I have to do this. This is a mission. And I didn't understand any obstacles. I didn't understand. So when Ronnie Hawkins, who Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks were a big, powerful rockabilly band at this time, and, and, and they were playing all over, and he had big popular songs and and he was known as having the most wicked bands of any of those rockabilly guys carl perkins jerry lee johnny cat any of them boom they all knew the hawk was the the guy so he says come down from canada and they're down in the mississippi delta they were all from arkansas from the south he said come down here I don't know if this is going to work out or anything, but I want to try you out. But this was after you'd written those songs. Yeah. First, I, you'd written the songs, right? Um, it, when it, you were... 15. 15. I, I was 15. Because I wanted to ask you about the train ride. Okay, so you wrote these songs. You saw Levon, who you describe in the mm. documentary. Talk about... Talk, because I want to go slower in this moment. So you, you, you talk about what happened when you saw Levon when you went to see the Hawks play. Well... I had a group called Robbie and the Robots, yeah. and we opened for Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks in Toronto. And we had heard, you know, that these guys were killer. And when they performed, it was beyond. I, I had never seen anything like this. And it was also 
There was something really dangerous and wicked about this music and driving. And the guy driving this train was Levon Helm. His drumming, oh my God. And to see him, you could go to their show and just watch this Because he guy. was also young like you, right? Yeah, well, he was maybe three years older than me, which seemed like a, a lot at the time. So he was 17, you were 14, but he's playing with Ronnie Hawkins. Yeah. And you say he was like glowing to you. It, it was just phenomenal. And did you feel a sense <laughs> of connection to him right away? Because he became your creative partner for a very long time. Well, when I first saw them, they were all from the South. They were the real deal. I didn't even know if they would acknowledge me. So I met them, and I was just trying to get in on this Southern musicality. I wanted to be close to this. So when Ronnie then, after I write this, a couple of songs for him, the next year I'm 16, he says, come down here. I'm going to check you. I'm going to see possibly, I don't know, it's not likely, but I'll check it out. So I go from Canada down to the Mississippi Delta, I am I am too young to play in the places they play. I'm 16 years old. I am not experienced enough to play in a band like this. I'm not a good enough guitar player yet to that, play that in That part's a, not true. Not yet. At this time, I was just learning. I was just getting somewhere. You didn't feel mastery over the instrument at that age at 16, I you was, were aware that you had some place to go? Oh my God, did I ever. I had a long ways to go. So anyway, I wasn't good enough on guitar. And I'm from Canada. And there's no Canadians in Southern rock and roll bands. It's almost against the rules, right? So I've got this hill to climb. And I thought, I've got I've to win this. And I worked so hard and I studied this so well. And I was in, in the Mississippi Delta. To me, that was the holy land of rock and roll. And I was just soaking it in. And for a hundred miles radius from Memphis to Clarksdale, Mississippi, it seemed to me like all my heroes, what's in the water here? Right. How, How can did this everybody happen? be this good? When you were on that train, how long a uh, train ride was it about, do you think, from Toronto to where you were meeting? It, you know what? For me, I, I was lost inside this dream, and I had no idea. It, to me, it went by in a minute, right? And I was looking. I had never been this far from home before. And I'm taking it in, and we're going down, and we're going further down. And the, the train, he's announcing the different places, you know, as we're going. And we finally, we get to St. Louis. And he says, people, this is St. Louis, the gateway to the West, right? And that's where I, after that, the train didn't go to the Mississippi Delta. I had to get off and then take a take bus. buses and stuff? Yeah. I and so you're just a bus. skinny little kid with yeah. a guitar. I didn't have a guitar. 
I didn't have a guitar because I had to come across the border. I know you said you sold in the documentary. You say you sold yeah. one guitar, but yeah. I thought you had a. Di- no, you sold no, no. your only guitar. I thought I'm going to Memphis, Tennessee. They got guitars already there, so I just I had to sell the guitar to, to have the money the trip. to get down there. Yeah, I mean that's just incredible. What, did your parents? I mean, your mother. Right? Was it your mother? Yeah, who was a great support to you. And the doc makes clear, and you say that going to the. Native American or Native Canadian reservation six gave nations, you this. Six yeah. Nations gave you this spirit of music. It, yep. um, what was the conversation like? Because a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are uh, dream of doing this stuff, and they're always wondering, like, what it feels. They ask me all the time, you know, taking this kind of step when people around you look at you like you're crazy. What does it take to actually take that step? And before you left, did you get any sense from? Your mom or people around you, like, we're really rooting for you and we think it's possible? Or did they all look at you like you were nuts? Well, most looked at me like, um, this doesn't happen for people like us. So you're probably going to be very disappointed. They were worried and for you. They were worried for me. And, it, you know, and there was other people that just didn't believe it could happen. And then there was a part of my family on the Jewish side that, were, that weren't really working above the law to a great degree. My uncle w- was like the, the Meyer Lansky of Canada. And but you didn't find out till you were uh, in your teen years I that that was your uncle, I didn't right? find out till I was 13. Right, that, yeah. that these were your, your family. My, and real, I, my real family. I mean, I relate. I'm, obviously, I've known who my family are. My dad and mom are my dad and mom, but... You know my dad a little bit, so you know that I ha- have an understanding of what you're talking about of these kind of guys who are. <laughs> my dad wasn't a criminal, but but he was. He he certainly was familiar with them. Of course. And my a great uncle was in the garment center. Was like a loan shark in the garment center. And sure. I know what that whole thing was. Six for five. There's, there's this incredible <laughs> moment you know? in the documentary. And also, we were on Roulette Records, which was run by Morris Levy. So it was all connected. When were you on Roulette Records? With Ronnie Hawkins. Right. So my father's office was right in that building. My dad was right in Morris's. After the podcast, I'll tell you one Morris Levy story that my dad, I don't know what to do here. But well, I'll tell you one. I need them. Yeah. Tell I'll, it. Well, I'll, tell it. We got a microphone. Well, I don't. I, He's I, dead. I, There's no statute of limitations anymore. You can tell it. I Okay. So I write these two songs for Ronnie Hawkins when I'm 15. He records them on his new album. He gives me a copy when it comes out of the new album. And on the record, it says written by Robertson and Levy. No. Oh, this is great. He stole half your song. Yeah, of course. So I said, wait a minute. Who's Levy? There was was nobody in the room when I wrote these songs. Right. I wrote them alone in my bedroom. Right. So Ronnie says, well, you know, there's certain things in this business, kid. You know, it could be, you know, everything. It's Sometimes you just got to let this stuff go. And I was like... No, no, no. This is wrong. This guy is putting his name and taking the songwriting that I wrote. This is wrong. So anyway. So what happens? So anyway, Ronnie brings me to New York to, and he says, if you could write songs for me, maybe you could hear songs that would be great for me. So he brings me here, takes me to the Brill Building. I meet Pomus and Schumann. Lieber Doc and Pommes, Stoller. Doc Pomus, the great songwriter. Yeah. yeah. Lieber and Stoller, the great songwriters. Otis Blackwell, 
who wrote Don't Be Cruel, and uh, you know many many others, Titus Turner, all these guys in the Brill Building, right? So I'm listening to these songs, and 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 Doc and Mort, both of them were friends of mine after this to the end of their lives. Lieber and Stoller, friends of mine, so that Jerry passed away, and, and it was a, a funny thing that this set this off. But anyway, I'm there, I'm listening to songs, Lieber and Stoller play a song, and I say, oh my God, that's great. I said, if, if, have you got any more? And then Jerry looks at me and says, wait a minute, who are you again? Right, you're a kid. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I, why am I playing songs for you? So I said, no, 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 I'm a, I'm a young songwriter too. And Ronnie Hawkins asked me to blah, 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 blah. So they laugh. Uh-huh. Anyway, so Ronnie says, we're going up to Morris's office oh, wow. um, at Roulette Records. Um, you know, you should come with me. And uh, but, so I'm thinking to myself... We're going to go up there. I'm going to get this straightened out, the songwriting. As a 15-year-old kid. Because he doesn't get it. He wasn't there when I wrote it, right? So we go up to his office. We walk in. It's like a scene right out of Damon Runyon. We go in the office. There's these guys standing against the wall there, tough, rough-looking guys in black mohair suits. The women working the phones and everything there look like Veronica Lake in a movie with their blonde hair over one eye. I think you couldn't paint this picture better than this. And in a minute, Morris Levy comes out of his office and he loves Ronnie Hawkins. He's like, Ronnie, Ronnie, I love you. Come on in here. This guy's crazy. I love this guy. And I'm thinking to myself, what happens to gangsters when they're young that their voices go yeah, turn right. like this? Yeah. What is that? They all talk with yes, this. But you recognized him as a gangster right away. No, I heard. heard. Yeah. I'd heard. I'd heard. So Ronnie comes in and Ronnie's doing this camel walk across the right. It's just, it's an amazing scene. And Ronnie says, Morris, I just stopped in to see if there's any papers you want me to sign so I can avoid you hanging me out the window by my ankles. It was a famous story that he did that for somebody that he wanted to sign the contract. So anyway, Morris said, Oh, don't believe those stories. You you know me. I'm a lovely guy, right? And so anyway, it is just fantastic. And I'm just along, taking along. So we sit down. Ronnie's talking. Then Ronnie says to Morris, Morris, this is the kid I was telling you about that I think has a lot of potential, right? So Morris looks over at me, kind of just acknowledging me really for the first time. He looks over at me and he said, yeah, he said he's a cute kid. If you ever have to do time, it'd be good to have him with you. And oh, I thought, what? What? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to forego this songwriting <laughs> I'm problem. I'm not going to have the argument. I'm just going to let it go for now, right? How did you not put that line in a song if you ever <laughs> if you ever have to do time? Yeah. That's unreal. So I wrote about that in my book uh, in testimony though. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. That's incredible. And but, and so is his name when when his name got taken off a bunch of those blues guys records, 
Was it taken off of yours, or do you still share co-writing credit? I know. He's my partner. Still, he's your partner still. I'll just very quickly say it. So this guy, Morris Levy, famously, he's Hesh in The Sopranos was based on Morris Levy. He was a gangster. And the I'll, just, uh, this, I'll tell my dad's story in one minute. So my dad was a record business guy. He worked where with Morris on a separate floor. He had his own record company. One day, Morris calls him into the office and says, uh, come in, kid. He comes in, and Morris has a steamer trunk in on the floor of the office and he flips open the steamer trunk and inside it are thousands of 45 labels. And my father says, what the fuck is this Morris? And Levy calls a guy in and goes, tell Mr. Koppelman. And the guy goes, you told me to follow the truck. I followed the truck. I made it pull over. I wrapped the guy in the head. I took the trunk and I brought it here to you. And he leaves. And my father says to Levy, what, what is this? And, and Levy says, this was a, a factory that was bootlegging all our records because when he looked in the 45 labels, half were roulette and half were my dad's Love and Spoonful and Turtles records. And my father said, are we going to sue him? What are we going to do? And Levy said, kid, the factory has been blown up. <laughs> the guy who owns the factory's legs have been broken. And my father's 27 and he just goes, well, when? When did all this happen? And Levy says, tomorrow night. <laughs> and that's true Whoa. that's a true story Yeah. Well, so you don't want to fucking ask that guy to give you back 50% of your song and also it wasn't you know when I was with Ronnie Hawkins Morris opened a, a, a he owned Birdland right right, yeah. right across the street and and we were playing at another club that he'd opened called the Round Table. And in between sets, we would go over to Birdland and Coltrane was playing and Mose Allison and everything. And we would go you over saw there. saw Coltrane play? Yeah. At, at, at Birdland with Alvin Jones. Uh, yeah. So anyway, one night there, Morris Levy's brother who looks just like him, is at the bar, and somebody comes in, and they're looking for Morris. They see the brother who looks just like him, and they killed him at the bar. You were there? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. And so was Quincy Jones, who I didn't know At yet. the time. You didn't yeah. know he was arranging all this music and doing yeah. that whole thing. That's um, incredible. One thing. So the songwriting thing to this day is no longer a problem. <laughs> Morris can share. He can share the songwriting. Yeah, I didn't like the Luckily, songs that much anyway. you didn't anyway. make a publishing deal with him. You didn't let him own your songs, no. right? Going forward. No. So going forward, I mean, that's interesting, right? Because I've all, learned a little bit of a lesson. Right. All the battles, you will get to it, but the battles that you had over sharing songwriting credit, even though we're making light of it, you... You felt violated by this guy taking half. I mean, as an artist, I know what... I mean, this guy took half of what you did yourself. And it's something about that felt bad to you. It just seemed like, well, that's not true. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But you that's know, part of why later like... you didn't want to share the... You know, if someone arranges a song, it's different than writing a song. So, Oh, you're talking about well, in the documentary. Yeah, in the documentary. Yeah, no, 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 no. I wrote the songs. Right, but, of but, course. But other things happened, and, and, you know, and things came out later on, but it had nothing really to do. I mean, I was... That's oh, clear. I played, you know, with this group since I was 16 years old for 16 years. Of course. And nobody ever for one second questioned how hard I was That's working. That's all everybody talks about. And if it wasn't for the songs, the, the, it wouldn't have existed. So uh, I'm okay. I'm completely okay. Of you course. Yeah. You were the night they drove old Dixie down up on Cripple please, Creek. The wait. You wrote every... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's clear. 
Let's talk about the New Yorker. Here's the thing. It is so much fun to advertise for something that I actually use. Like, I probably talk about things I read in the New Yorker on here, even when I'm not being asked to talk about the New Yorker. And why? Because it's the best writing in America today. No doubt about it. They write beautifully on subjects that you may have thought about before, may not have, but by the end you're like obsessed for some reason. And part of that is because the writers they have are people like Evan Osnos, who's a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Emily Nussbaum won the damn thing, the Pulitzer. Uh, Khalifa Sana, who's been contributing for like 20 years to write about sports, pop music, and culture. And right now, if you check out The New Yorker, uh, you could see these trending stories like the floodgates open on Trump. In the wake of the whistleblower complaint, the president's disregard of democratic norms has reached a point of crisis. Will more people come forward with damning information? My own guess is yes, they will. And already have started to. There's articles about Pelosi. Then there's an article about what if your abusive husband is a cop? And these things are trending right now. And there's always something amazing to read at The New Yorker. And honestly, it's not just this stuff about what's in the news. I mean, there's it's the best writing on the arts on so much of the stuff that we care about that I talk about on here with my guests. And here's the thing, you can get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just six bucks. It's regularly 12, plus The New Yorker tote bag. Home delivery, the print edition each week. Unlimited access to newyorker.com, which I take advantage of all the time. There's 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every single day. Access to the apps, the online archive, crossword puzzles, and more. Come on, man, The New Yorker is just really the best. Get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just six bucks plus the exclusive tote. Go to newyorker.com slash moment. Listeners save 50% when they enter moment. The New Yorker. So watching the documentary and listening to your music and hearing your story, it, it seems clear to me that you had this remarkable ability to be like hyper-present, fully engaged in what you were doing, whether it was playing or writing. But you, you had also at the same time, it seems, of complete awareness of the moment in time you were in. You, you talk about it in the documentary. It, it seems like you were moved by the music when you watched Levon and, and Ronnie, and, and you were swept away, but you were also analytical about it. And I, well, Is that just always how you were? Do you think that's part of being a writer, This, the way you're able to be here and also kind of like aware of being here? I find it fascinating. You know, you want to understand your own vision. And so you look at something and you think, where did that come from? How did that become that? And I had this early on to, I became a, a movie bug, you know, when I was, when I was really young. And I was like, I watch a movie and I'd think, how did they put all this together? You know what I mean? That, that curiosity. Right away you would be thinking that way. That curiosity. And then years later, I used to go over here to the Gotham Book Mart on 47th Street in the Diamond District, right? And there was this great bookstore there. And I found out I could buy the scripts to classic movies in there. I thought, whoa, Bonanza, this is unbelievable. Now this is going to teach me more than what I saw. I was buying the scripts to Howard Hawks movies and Orson Welles and Karasawa and Boonwell and Fellini and Bergman, all of this. And I read, it was my literature at the time. And out of that, my songwriting with the band grew to become what it was. Well, it's fascinating too, because a moment ago you said the, the, uh, the thing of how you didn't want to write interstitials, but in the documentary, 
someone makes a point that very early on you said, someday I'm going to work with Ingemar Bergman. Right. And yeah. that you did, that part of you understood the way that music fit in to movies even at a young age, right? That you liked the whole storytelling. I think that if I hadn't become addicted to music at such a young age and gone on that mission, I would have ended up in movie land. I would have been a writer. Well, you're a storyteller. Or a director. But your I just, songs are cinematic songs, right? I mean, your songs are... They're all little movies they to me. Are. They are. Yeah. They feel that way. And from the beginning... I mean, not the Ronnie Hawkins songs, but like from when you started making what was your music in the band, even... Um, the weight, right? I mean, that is... Uh, and It's a movie. I don't want to spoil this for people because it's so great <laughs> in the documentary, but the way... Well, I would talk about it like this. Um, Have you seen this new version of The Weight? Where all the different, with all the different people all around, around the, world. the world. Were you involved in that? I, my son did it. Oh, my son produced that. It wasn't your... He had the idea to do it. Yeah. That's amazing. And I just thought, oh, that sounds like a nice idea. And then he said, uh, yeah, could you come now? Right, and, and you did your part. Yeah. Playing it, and I was like, uh, you know, it's my son. I said, sure. And, you know, he's doing a hundred other things. And this was something, because he knows these people that did the Playing for Change people. And they do these videos that are incredible. And so this was part of that. But this one really turned out to be something. It's amazing. No, it's and it's amazing. a phenomenon. It's only been out a few days. No, Dave, my, my partner in crime who you just met, he had turned me before... I watched the documentary. He had turned me on to it. He was like, you got to look at this thing. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't it's know. It's just one more thing that I've got in the, in the loop these days. That, that's that are, happening right that now. That is just crazy. Well, yeah. it must feel. So what is lighting you up right now? I mean, I, I want to continue to talk about, because the documentary brought up all this stuff, but you are a, such a working artist now. What is lighting you up right now, like in your own work and in the culture? What's turning you on these well, days? Well, I was... I, the light went on when I was recording this album, Cinematic. And because I was, I, w I was really, really working, you know, in, in my mind very hard and trying to figure out what to do with the music for The Irishman, Martin Scorsese's new movie. And it's, it's a mob movie and, and more than that. Um, but it takes place over many, many decades. And I had to find a musicality, a sound, a flavor, a mood that didn't have a time stamp on it that could work through thematically through all these decades. And I thought, well, that's impossible to do, but I had to figure it out. And I came up with something and I told Marty, I said, I think, I think maybe, and I go through this with him on every movie uh, that we do together. But I said, I, I, I think I've got something. I think I'm, I'm, you know. So he said, and I and I tried to explain the flavor of it to him, and he said, Oh, that's good. That's good. He said, As long as it doesn't sound like movie music. And so when you are doing music for a movie. And the number one rule is it can't sound like movie music. All of a sudden, the challenge is on. Oh, and, yeah. But <laughs> now you have to exciting. make a Robbie Robertson album. I mean, then that made you make a Robbie Robertson album. And you went in it quite direct. So I listened very closely to the album. I love the, I, you know, and I'd heard the record before I watched the doc. I didn't, 
I didn't know that that song was about the band until I watched the doc, and then I was like, oh, it's about the band. Because it also could have been about the character. I, I've read the um, Payne Houses book, so I know what that's about. Uh-huh. So uh, I didn't realize, but you go at this very directly, much more directly than often I think you go at stuff in your music. You know, you're, you're in telling the stories, it feels very direct. The song with Van Morrison in it, it's like you're just laying it out. In I, don't, I was wondering about that choice. I loved it. It's sort of it's always poetic imagery, but but in a way it's um, pulpy imagery. It is. Was that a, cho- a conscious choice? I mean, you I know, know it was. And in, I get, the, in the sense, you know, too of pure storytelling or pure movie making. At one point, you're also saying, "Okay, here's what happened," yes. and that's it. That's what I really dug about that re- that record was that idea that it is just like um, you're, the part that you sing is a I mean uh, it's very reportorial in a way where you you are you're laying it out and I thought it was just a great uh, really cool choice to make did that come to you as you were writing the song were you aware of okay I'm working on the movie and I know the movie comes from this book and it's a mob expression. And if somebody in the, you know, oh, yeah. you know, somebody way up in the mob and needs a job done and they go to somebody that could do this job and it's like asking a hitman and you say, uh, I heard you paint houses. Yes. And if the guy says, uh, yes, I do, it means I have a job for you to kill somebody and you just agreed to take the job. And the paint houses is unfortunately referring to the splatter of blood. Right. And you just put, yeah, that's in, and the song kind of lays this out. Yeah. And, uh, it's very powerful. And then there's the song about the, about the band. And I, uh, obviously you've grappled with your legacy or you're aware of your legacy. But what made you decide to take it on so directly now? We were working on the documentary. Yeah. And at some point in there, with this documentary and it being so ingrained in the brotherhood of this band, and it was an incredible brotherhood and something so magical that happened between us. And like you said before, that we come out, we've been together for several years and we've been through, we've been there and back and we make our first album, it comes out, it has an effect on the culture, it has an effect on the course of music, it has an effect on the sound of music, everything. To and this then we day. Make, and, and Yeah, and, it, and, it, and, and so it goes from there, and so the depth of that, and the fact that I've lost three of my brothers, that they've passed away, um, I sat down to write a song and that's what happened. It came out that way because of the documentary and because of where I was at at this point. And then they decided to actually call the documentary after the Once We're Brothers. Yes. And is your, um, a bunch of different thoughts just fired off. Uh, but one is, is your approach to writing same as it ever was? Are you still rigorous? Um, sort of disciplined and rigorous about the time you're going to do it and or are you waiting for inspiration to strike? How do you how do you approach it now as an artist? How has it changed or stayed the same? It's <clears throat> I don't think that it's tremendously different. 
I think that I, I, you know, I see a picture, and I try to grasp it. I, I, I try to wrap myself around that, and and in the song, that you know, when it starts to, and you've heard this expression you know, many times before, it starts to write itself. It never really writes itself, but it starts coming in a way of a certain flow. And then you think, I'm going somewhere. Yes, of course. I'm yes. following the path here, and I'm going to see on this path when I get to where I, I need to go, whether it adds up for me or not. And that's, you know. Are you still, uh, like when I was a young, a young writer, I definitely bought into that myth of waiting for inspiration. Oh, I'll write at night, whenever. And then at a certain point, I realized, oh, no, I got I to gotta show up and then oh, yeah. start in. And then hopefully it flows and you get that sense. It's, it's, it's a job. Uh, right. So do you still approach it that way? Oh, yeah. You write a certain number of times a week? I write, well, this period right now, because I've just finished this album, I've just finished the music for the Irishman. Yeah. I've just finished the documentary Once We're Brothers, and I've just put together the 50th anniversary collection of the band album. All of these things. So right now, <clears throat> if you don't mind, I'm not going to write for a few minutes. I've just I'm just dealing with all these things. And even on this record, the pictures, like I said, were coming to life so much that I shared these paintings that I do that I've done for each song in the album, and I've never shared that before. This is the first time you're sharing this. Yeah. Right. And so you're going to take a minute and then work. But when you're in the mode of working, you're working on a daily basis. Oh, yeah. You're getting up and writing. I, I, I have a studio that I go to, and it's like a think tank, and I can shut myself off from the world, and I go in there, and I have guitars on the, on the wall hanging, I have a piano, I have keyboards, I have a microphone and a board, so I can, you know, I go in there and, and come close to making a record, you know, I can go in and, 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 get a very close idea to what I'm reaching for. So that's just part of the the ability and the technology of today of that I can do this that I couldn't couldn't do it quite as much like back in the day. Do you, do you have grandkids? Yes, I do. How many? 5. And do they understand where you fit in the world? Do they Yes, they well, so how does they, that work? To whatever extent, you know, I mean when somebody is Four or five years oh, old, they 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 have a take on it. They don't understand it as much as the oldest one is fourteen. So what's that they, like? Yes. And so no, no, they're like, um, they're like I I I just saw some of the last waltz again last night, and oh, that's and awesome. they and and they talked to me like. I really liked what you were doing. <laughs> and I oh, thought, that's... oh, that's nice. I could... Then I have another grandson, Gabriel, who listens to my music a lot. Whenever he's going to school in the car, they put on, he just, you know, he says, put on Papa Rob's music. I want to, wow. and when I see him, he'll just recite 
lyrics from a song that I wrote 30 years ago and stuff and knows them all and it's just suddenly broken out suddenly singing <laughs> yeah, broken right, out that's right oh, how does that must feel great you're it lighting up feels, talking about oh it oh my god it feels it feels wonderful so it, during that period of time when you made music from Big Pink and then when you in, were recording basement tapes because when you say you change that music changed the culture changed music uh, for anyone young listening, this this just isn't an overstatement. You know, uh, there's a an award ceremony called the Americana Award Ceremony. There's this entire kind of radio called Americana Music that just didn't exist before you made music. You combine these different forms, these disparate forms of music, into this new sound that ev- that that became. You know, there's a reason Jason Isbell's writing uh, a song about Danko and Manuel. Manuel, right? Because the drive-by truckers wouldn't exist if it weren't for the band. But in those moments, in particular, I'm sure when you're writing your own songs, you wonder it. But when you were recording Million Dollar Bash or something, and you're sitting there with Bob, and you'd had all this history with him, obviously, were you aware, did part of you take in how monumental it was? Or were you just made, like, because I, I'm, the reason I started the podcast originally, I called it The Moment five years ago, was... I always wonder if in the moment of greatness, the people doing it know it. Like, when you're sitting there recording Million Dollar Bash, are you aware, holy fuck, this is for history? Or are you just like making a cool record? No, you're in the moment. In that moment, I was just trying to figure out what the chord structure should be in Million Dollar Bash. You mean then you were? Yeah. And we had no idea when we were recording a lot a, of the basement tapes. It was just for us. Nobody was ever going to hear this. You believed that at the time. Oh, well, we, but some of the songs, <coughs> excuse me, but some of the songs, Bob, because so many people recorded Bob Dylan songs that the publishers were saying, we need a new batch of songs. So Bob was like, well, while we're here, I'll see if I can think of anything because the publishers, they want... So every once in a while, he would write a song like Quinn the Eskimo or I Shall Be Released or, you know, on and on and on. So he played you, I Shall Be Released. You were like the first... You guys were the first people to hear I Shall Be Released. Well, we were the first ones to record it with him. Of course. In the basement. And then after that, I thought, you know what? And And I told Richard Manuel... I think that you could sing this song really good. I think you could sing it in kind of that Curtis Mayfield sound, that falsetto-y sound and everything, and that's what we did. And that one, did Bob bring in the chords too? Was that a fully written song? No. That shall be released? None of them were ever fully written. And how come you made the decision to not... To, that their songs were all written by, you know, other than those, like, uh, oh no, 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 he 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 wrote the songs, including but, but, the melodies and the chords. No, no, but what he did was he wrote lyrics on a typewriter up in the living room yes. of Big Pink. Then he'd say, "I think there might be something here. Let's go downstairs." So we'd go downstairs, and he'd set it there, and he'd pick up the guitar. But he did this with just about every song that he wrote, the, the the lyrics would insinuate to him a chord progression 
or a melody. And so he would start just doodling along, blah, blah, blah. We would join in, and it would just go to this place. And it was a just, it was so natural. Yeah. I mean, this is, these are, when one listens to that record, when one listens to music from Big Pink and that record, as a kid, you know, I'm 53, so I'm 20 years younger than you. But so when I was growing up, you guys had already made these records, but when, when, when I would listen to them, you know, when I was 15, 16, I, you felt these people playing together. I mean, you know this, the magic of these records, these songs Bob and you wrote, but then also you felt uh, the mystery in them. You felt the sense of discovery in them, of, uh, of magic that it sometimes is there and sometimes just isn't on records, right? Have you ever been able to figure out what that difference is? No. Right. You don't, <laughs> it you... is. It's, it's the, the great holy uh, mystery that we love. And some things, you just, we've always said, you know, some things it's just better if you don't know, you know. And then because of that innocence, you know, you're able to go somewhere and it's not contrived. And it's not, you know, a, a lot of people, and, and I'm, yeah, I have nothing against the way different people w work whatsoever, but now a lot of people make records. They go in and they'll work with five other songwriters in figuring out a part on it. Then they'll lay that down and then Somebody will come in the next day, they'll add something and they'll keep it or not. Then somebody will come in a week later, they'll do a thing in the chorus, change that a bit, and they build it. But it's like manufacturing something and there's no longer that single soul that it's coming from. Now it, it is a factory. And now it is a, you know, building... It's an amorphous thing that's Building not... blocks. And I think whatever works is fine, you know, but, but I thought, you know, I, I, I thought three's a crowd. I thought, I can understand Rodgers and Hammerstein. I think that's fine. You know, Rodgers and Hart. Yeah, I can understand Palmas and Schumann. And, yeah, <laughs> All and of those things. These partners, songwriters. McCartney and Lennon weren't bad either. You know, so, you know what I mean? All of these, all of these techniques. But all of a sudden, when you got five people, eight people, all of these things in there... I don't know if it's becoming a bit mechanical, perhaps, but if they're just looking for hooky, hooky sounds. Well, they're sounds after something. And, you were after something else, right? Yeah. As an artist, you were after something else. You were, you were after a kind of an expression and a kind of world building, right? In, yeah. You were creating a mythical land and inviting us into it. I don't know if eight people should make a painting. Right. Chagall would have would disagree probably. Right? <laughs> Didn't Chagall have that? Yes, I agree. Yeah. Jeff Koons is not my favorite artist, right? I'll, I'd rather. Um, I I understand that point of view. Nothing. Nothing's anything wrong with Jeff Koons. In case I ever want to use uh, Jeff Koons in the show, he's great. <laughs> he's great. He's a great guy, Jeff too. And he's explained some things how he built some some things too and it was kind of fascinating when he was describing it as well but it's not a guy on a guitar 
creating a world. It's different, right? It's 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 not, it's Van, not Rothko. It's not Van Gogh well, and Rothko. It's not Rothko, uh, right? It's yeah. a different. It's not it's not Jasper Johns. It's different. Right. It's a different trip. Yeah, he's saying something. By the way, I mean that's saying something different, right? Yeah. Um, when when you were around Bob, are you know the greatest songwriter who ever? I mean, we could talk about Cole Porter or whatever, but for me, the greatest songwriter who ever lived. Um, there's this moment in the doc where where you play him. Uh, the Wade. And can you just talk about what, were you nervous to play him that song? Well, and then well, talk about his reaction to it. And I really want to un- know from you, because in the doc, someone else talks about it, what it meant to you when he responded to it. Well, it will, after the basement tapes, when we went and made music from Big Pink, I, I wanted to be able to present this whole thing to him as a complete package. So I waited until we finished the record, and then we got together to play it for him. And the first song comes on, Tears of Rage, that Bob and Richard Manuel wrote. And it comes on, and Bob was like, whoa, Richard, man. And, and just the vibe of that, of that song, it was like, Nobody had quite heard anything quite like that before, and 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 it, that it it was something that seeped out of the basement tapes, and we turned it into something else altogether. So he was like, I would say, very moved by that. And when we're playing the record, and when the weight played, and he said to me, uh, uh, who wrote that? And I said, I, I wrote that. And he said, you wrote that? <laughs> I said, yeah. And it just, and, and what I, you know, in the documentary, what I'm saying, it, he just looked like a big brother to me, kind of proud that this guy, you know, that he, this guy that he thought might have something really has something, you know, so. I mean, that just must have meant so much to you, right? Of course it did, yeah. Do you still pl- do you play him your records still? I'm going to. You'll go play him this record. It's <laughs> oh yeah, you'll yeah. send it to him, or you'll go sit. I, I think I've already sent it to him. Yeah. And you still ca- do you still care about his opinion? It still matter to you? I think so. It depends on what he says. <laughs> <laughs> do you um do you miss playing in a band? Do you or do you like doing this thing yourself? I do. I collaborate. Collaboration, like in movies, like in music, like in, you know, certain things that are, the spirit of it is what everybody brings into the center. And and I get to work with Glenn Hansard on this record. A great songwriter. He's a great songwriter and great singer movies, and yeah. a terrific, another Irish guy. So I'm working on the music for the Irishman. Van Morrison comes by. And so I'm thinking, oh, he's Irish, right. Of course, he would come, you know, where this connects. Then Glenn Hansard comes to town. He comes by and I think, oh, he's Irish too. And I'm like, guys, I'm working on the Irish friend, you know. That's great. And so that's how you grab them up and bring them in. It just all connects, right? And then all of the other people that I worked with on this record, things just fit together. The pieces were just great people to collaborate with. And so it is like being in a band. But now, 
you know, my band is, you know, they're from all over the universe. And did did this, as you were making the documentary, we'll, we'll finish up. Um, I have two more questions. The first, I guess, is, so what, what gets you out of bed in the morning now? What gets you out of bed to want to, is it the work? Is it family? What is it that... Well, all all of the above, I would think, but I do wake up and in the creative mode, yes. I think, okay, what do we what do we have to discover today? You know, what a beautiful question, <laughs> right? Well, that is that's the 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 drive. That's the thing that makes me tick, and it makes me be working on ten different things at one time. And it doesn't feel tiresome. It feels inspired. Do you think, and this is the last question I'll ask you, do you think that, you know, I was thinking about the disastrous interview that guy did with David Crosby, who I know all interviews with David Crosby have the potential to be disastrous. But, and part of it is, um, do you think part of why you're comfortable and eager to talk about your legacy and think about your legacy is that you've never stopped being a creative artist? You keep, I, I think it's as a lesson to anybody as we all g- get older and have a body of work, um, it seems like you're very comfortable examining where the band fits in, where you fit in, but it doesn't feel like nostalgia act stuff at all because you're still waking up to figure out what you want to discover. You're still an active artist and you still think of yourself very much that way, right? I don't know what else to do. I don't know how else to operate. And for what I do and the different elements that I'm surrounding the, the projects and I'm surrounding myself with, I don't know anybody else in the world that's doing this. So that makes me feel good. Nobody's working on all these kind of things and making this kind of stuff happen at a, you know, in the, from the generation that I'm in. Lots of people are still working but they're not doing this kind of thing. Right. So that excites me and that makes me think it's worth thinking that way when I wake up in the morning. It's worth thinking, all right, what have we got? What have we got? Let's go. What have we got? Let's go. Well, this is, um, man, this is an unbelievable thrill for me. Thank you for being here. Oh, Brian, this is a pleasure. And uh, go out there and find Robbie Robertson's new record, Cinematic. I've been listening to it a lot the documentary, when is the documentary, uh, where, when is that going to be available to people? Because I, I saw an early, ver, you know, I saw it before it's out. Is it Netflix? Yeah. Where is it? Well, it's, it, it, you know, we were so lucky. It opened the Toronto International Film Festival. They've never done anything like this before. Well, you're a and the cultural re- icon there. I mean, yeah. But the, yeah, but it's still a documentary, and they want a big blockbuster to open the festival. Yes. And they saw this film it's and beautiful. said, you know what? We're going to do this. We're going to And the reaction to it, because I had never seen it with an audience. I just worked on it, right? And the reaction, oh, my God, just sent chills through me. Of course. And it sent more chills through the, uh, through the audience. So that was a lovely thing. And Martin Scorsese came up and Ron Howard, because Imagine Entertainment came in <clears throat> and helped us. Ron's a lovely guy. He's yeah, lovely take it guy. to another level. So now, after that, Magnolia Films ah, has taken it. And they're fantastic. Yeah, so they're releasing it in theaters um, here and around the world. Over the next month or two? 
Uh, no, I, I don't think the schedule is going to be that quickly because got they it. got a book. All right, well, then you yeah. got to wait. So go get the record now. Go watch The Irishman. You'll hear hear Once, Robbie's music, yeah. his interstitial music. No, you'll go get the record for to hear music inspired by the Irishman, and make sure you go see this documentary when it's in theaters. It's um, it's a very special thing, and and Robbie Robertson is a living legend for a reason. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. You can email me the moment, uh, bk at gmail.com. Robbie Robertson, thanks for doing this. Thank you. <laughs>